Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. We made it. We're back. Thank you for stopping, taking a moment to chop it up with me. This is Of Things Eternal. My name is Lathan Lightfoot. And this is where we shed the constraints of viewing the world and our situations through a cardinal lens, through a temporary lens, and begin to view things through an eternal lens or a permanent lens, because we know that the things of this world will pass away, but the truth of the Lord and his scriptures, his communication to us, will never pass away. This is where our biblical literacy gets leveled up to a place where we are able to discern truth from lies and avoid the deceptive practices of the adversary as we navigate the landscape of our society and our culture. So I'll repeat, why is biblical literacy so important? Simple answer. Discerning truth from lie, doctrine from deception. The simplest way I can put it. So we are back. This is episode two. Where we're going to continue our series in basic biblical literacy. Again, this is not an exhaustive study. This isn't a master's class in hermeneutics. This isn't, you know, like this isn't for uh, the academic in us. This is for the everyday person. This is for... Uh, I hate to use this term, but Joe Schmo, right? To kind of get a good foundation on on what biblical literacy is. Uh, because we need to be able to discern truth from lies. We need to be able to protect ourselves from the agendas, from the deceptions, from all these kind of things that are plaguing the church right now. Uh, the body of Christ is under attack, and I'm not going to go on, jump on a soapbox for, for persecution or anything like that, but the reality is, is we live in a culture that is no longer compatible with our faith. So in order to avoid the deceptive practices of the adversary, we have to be able to understand Scripture and recognize it for what it is, it is the inerrant word of God, but it is also literature. And to be able to read literature in its correct form is only going to empower us to be able to stand up against the temptations, to be able to stand up against the accusations, and to be able to give a reasonable assessment of why we believe what we believe. So yes, this is apologetics, right? First Peter 3.15. That's where we get it from. So, just to recap last week, we got into uh, narrative literature, descriptive literature, and we established the difference between prescriptive literature and descriptive literature. We also looked into uh, the reality of reading the scripture for what it is. Once you recognize the type of literature it is, you read it as that type of literature. You don't force different things into it and try to create something uh, to fit 
you know, whatever preconceived notion or whatever presupposition that you have. Uh, the we're going to get canceled for sure moment that I used last week was Deuteronomy 28.68. And the reason why I say that is that's, that's a, a very, very popular passage that is being uh, misinterpreted deliberately to deceive the believers. And we want to get away from that. So again, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, one of the books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, this is descriptive narrative literature, right? So we can't turn descriptive literature into prophetic literature. Descriptive literature is designed to be read literally, plain English, right? There's no, we're not going to create metaphors out of plain English, plain reading uh, of the text. The text in descriptive literature is what it is. It's a recounting of what happened. It's a description of what's going, what's taking place. It's not meant for prophecy. It's not meant to make predictions. It's not meant to do any of that. So when we look at Deuteronomy 28.68, this is a descriptive passage. It's, it's designed to be read and understood exactly the way it's written. Again, God is not the God of inconsistency. The Lord that we serve, the Most High Creator God, is a God of structure and order. He's not the God of confusion. So just to, again, to go back into it real quick, I'm not going to stay on this because we've got to move forward. In Deuteronomy 28:68, Egypt is a geographical location. It is not a metaphor for spiritual bondage. It's not a metaphor for physical bondage. It is not a metaphor for anything else. It's not a metaphor. It is a geographical location. So to try to make Egypt and Deuteronomy 28:68, try to make it a metaphor, trying to force that prophecy into descriptive literature is problematic. It doesn't work, right? It just doesn't work. But this week we're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about the opposite of that, right? <laughs> so we're gonna have another we're gonna get canceled moment. <laughs> you can't make symbolic literature literal. What are you talking about, Lathan? You can't turn something that's designed to be a symbol into a literal interpretation. So we're going to get in trouble again. We're going to start this episode getting in trouble. That's okay. Now, this is a passage that is super duper popular. Uh, I know we all saw it on Malcolm X. Denzel Washington did a phenomenal job uh, in that movie. I love that movie. I watch the movie all the time. I've seen it. I can't even count how many times I've watched that movie. Uh -huh. But in that conversation with the with the priest, you know that scene was when you really think about it. That scene was so problematic on so many levels. Uh yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. That's a rabbit hole that I'm not going to go down right now. But let's read it, right? This was the account that uh, Malcolm X gave to the priest to validate a presupposition that Jesus Christ was black. And when I say black, I'm not talking about a person of color. I'm not talking about a dark-skinned person. I'm talking about an African. 
So let's read Revelation chapter 1, 14 through 16. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it fires, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. The book of Revelation was a vision given to the Apostle John by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The events in the book of Revelation are not events that have happened yet. It's prophetic and or apocalyptic literature. Meaning, everything, I'm going to say that again, everything in the book of Revelation is a metaphor on some level. Let me say that one more time. Revelation chapter 1, 14 through 16. This is the passage where we get a lot of our artwork, a lot of our uh, imagery about our Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break some bad news to you. The images that are drawn and depicted based on this passage are just as problematic as the images that, you're, that, that are trying to be debunked. Neither are scriptural. So real quick, when we talk about his hair being white like wool. This is a metaphor. This isn't saying that his hair was white. Right? What this metaphor is referring to is the description given in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. We also know that the book of Daniel is heavily prophetic. The book of Daniel has a number of passages talk, that, that talk about interpreting dreams, visions, prophecies, things of that nature. We know that about the book of Daniel. And so when it talks about the son of man's hair being white as wool, white like wool, this is a metaphor For his wisdom and his purity, not the color of his hair. So real quick, let's go to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We're going to go to verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. So as we look at Daniel 7, 9, <clears throat> I think it's pretty clear that that's symbolic language. 
in Revelation 1, 14 through 16, is referring to Daniel 7, 9. They're, they're connected passages. <clears throat> so to take one as a metaphor, to take one as prophetic literature, and to make the other <clears throat> narrative literature is problematic. It's just not the way you interpret scripture. It's not how you recognize literature and allow the literature to speak for itself. This is us forcing stuff into the passage. However, I'm an understanding guy, right? Um, you know, I like to play devil's advocate just to kind of prove the point, right? So let's say hypothetically, let's say hypothetically that we are to take this passage literally. And, four, and verse 14 says his hair was white as wool, white as snow, and that's supposed to be literal. And his eyes like a fiery flame. So if that's literal, then again, the rest of the passage has to be consistent. So in 16, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Right? Right. Okay. So we can see again, the Most High Creator God is the God of consistency. He's not the God of confusion. The God of the Bible is the God of structure and order. Consistency. 14, verse 14 cannot be read literally if verse 16 cannot be read literally. If we can acknowledge that, the, that Christ does not have a sword hanging out of his mouth, then we can also acknowledge that that the description used in 14 is also not literal. And we see the connections with Daniel 7, 9, right? I know the word literal interpretation is kind of a, it's kind of a scary theological buzz, buzzword, buzz phrase that a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of uh, controversy around that term literal interpretation. Yeah, we're going to talk about that next. There's nothing wrong with having a literal interpretation. That just means you're letting the Bible speak for itself. Right? I think so. Interpretation, right? Literal interpretation. What does that mean? Now, the opponents of uh, the term literal interpretation would say, well, you can't read the Bible literally because that means you have to take everything word for word as it says, right? So when it talks about a sword coming out of his mouth, well, you got to read that. But if you claim you read the Bible literally, then you believe that a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. No, stop it. 
We don't we don't do that. A literal interpretation goes back to recognizing genre and understanding that certain types of genre have certain characteristics. Narrative literature, descriptive literature, again, is going to be like a report being given. It's going to be like watching the news. It shares those characteristics. These are people recounting an, recounting an event and just telling you what happened. That's it. When we move to prophetic literature or even poetry, we recognize that poetry and prophetic literature cannot be read the exact same way that narrative and descriptive literature is read. Reading the Bible literally does not mean that you don't recognize the differences in literature. It actually means that you embrace the differences in literature, right? It's really interesting when you start to uh, when you start to speak to people about stuff like this, and you start to have conversations and dialogue about what does it mean to read the scriptures literally, uh, and you're going to find you're going to get some really interesting answers. I mean, there's really interesting answers out there. Uh, but the reality is, is that you know, and again, this isn't a master's class on hermeneutics, so I'm not going to get into these big. Uh, and I don't even consider the hermeneutics a scholarly word, but it's not a word that, that we use in everyday language. So I kind of treat it as like a, you know, like a an academic word, right? But reading the scripture in its everyday plain language allows you the ability to recognize literary forms. It allows you to, to recognize figures of speech. And that's what we're actually going to talk about now. Figures of speech, there's different types of figures of speech that are used in the Bible. And reading the Bible literally allows you to recognize that. And I know I've said that a hundred times, but I'm just trying to get the point across, right? Uh, one thing that we can recognize is a simile. Now, there's buzzwords that help you recognize, help you spot what a simile is. And when we go back to Revelation 1, 14 through 16, we see the word like all through it, right? His eyes like fire, a flowery flame. His feet were like fine bronze. His voice like the sound of cascading waters. His face was shining like the sun at full strength. These are, like, these are keys to let you know that what's being described is not, you're not supposed to read that literally, right? So when we're talking about listening to, you know, the good old sermon, sitting in church, uh, and when you're going through a passage and you start seeing some of these buzzwords, you know, such as like, then that, you know, that, uh, that alarm should go off in your head. Right? Okay, this is a simile. This isn't designed to, to be understood literally. This is designed to be understood as a, as a as a metaphor. This is a figure of speech. This is the foundation of biblical literacy. This is where we get started. Right? Again, this isn't a master's class. This is the starting point. This is where we get started talking about biblical literacy. This is ground level stuff that we have to we have to grasp. We have to get this stuff understood, because if we don't, 
then we get tricked by all these guys with fancy big words and all these, you know, slick talk and sounding like they know what they're talking about. We have to, we have to be able to, again, like we said last week, we have to be able to test the spirits. You can't test the spirits if you can't recognize some of this stuff. It's super important. It's super important. Here's an example, right? Here's an example of of a simile. Let's go to the book of Luke. We're going to go to the book of Luke. We're going to go to chapter 11. And we're going to go to verse 44. Again, remember these buzzwords. You know, the dead giveaway is the word like, right? So verse 44, woe to you. You who are like unmarked graves, the people who walk all who walk over them do not know it. Now you're like unmarked graves. Is he calling somebody a literal unmarked grave? I'm <laughs> trust me. I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence here, right? I'm not, I promise you, I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence. But I've heard pastors omit the word like in sermons. And I ask myself, why? This is clear. This is a clear simile. Right? This is figurative language. This is a figure of speech. We got to be able to spot this kind of stuff. And again, like it's, it seems simple, right? It seems simple enough. I agree. It does seem simple enough. I absolutely agree. But we're going to go through this because, again, we need to be ready. We have to be ready to give an account for what we believe. 1 Peter 3.15 Because there will be a day where you have to give an account. You're going to have a conversation with somebody at work. You're going to have a conversation with somebody you know, at a uh, at a get-together or a gathering. Because once you start walking with Christ, people are going to start seeing that. It's going to be all over you. And it's going to invite people to come talk to you. And, it's, and every conversation is not going to be pleasant. Some people will come, will, will approach you in a very accusatory manner, right? What do you talk about you believe in the spaghetti monster in the sky? Like, well, I bet you think Santa Claus is real, too. You have to be able to give an account, and it starts with biblical literacy. I'm not going to make this political. Not in this episode, at least. <laughs> we'll get to that at some point in time. Uh, but one of the tricks of the, of the adversary is pouring that honeyed wine. And right now, in our culture today, in this super, super tribalistic culture, uh, on both sides of the, of the fence, that honey wine is being poured in people's ears. And because many of us don't know how to read the scripture correctly and our biblical literacy is at a low, we believe what we hear, regardless of how foolish it makes us look. Let's go to Jeremiah. The Jeremiah, you know, again, this is a prophetical book. A lot of it is visions and dreams. Uh, 
future. So when you open the book of Jeremiah, you have to have that that in mind as a starting point. Again, rec- knowing what kind of literature it is helps you interpret it correctly. And if you can interpret it correctly, then you can apply it to your life correctly. That's the awesome thing about it. We're going to Jeremiah 34, 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me by proclaiming freedom, each for his fellow Hebrew and for his fellow neighbor. I hereby proclaim freedom for you. This is the Lord's declaration. To the sword, to plague, and to famine, I will make you a horror to all the earth's kingdoms. This is, again, figure of speech. When we think about the word horror, we're talking about something scary, right? We're talking about, we immediately go to, oh my God, this is going to be something terrible. Uh, My kids are going to be afraid. I'm going to have nightmares. No, it's just figurative language. He's not going to be a literal horror to all the earth's kingdoms because Israel is to be the light of the world. It's to be the nation of priests, right? They were designed to bring the good news. They were designed to teach the world about Yahweh, the creator God. They were the nation of priests. After the exodus, they were sent out. And they failed, but the purpose was to be sent out to be the example for everybody else. So is that horror? A horror? No. That's figure of speech. Figurative language. You know, where else we find a lot of figurative language, not just in prophetic literature, but also in poetry. And the book of Psalms is littered with it. And I'm I'm talking about just a whole bunch of figurative language. And we're not going to go through each and every passage on this. Uh, But just to kind of go through it, you know, look for for yourself. Psalms 512, 178, 122, 3. The list goes on and on and on of the figurative language. Similes that are being used that we recognize when we read the Bible in plain English. So that way we don't you know, fall into confusion. Yeah, that's what we have to do. Yes, sir. By the way, this is super early in the morning, (laughs) but that's all good. We're ready for it, right? (laughs) It's super early in the morning, but no worries. No worries. (laughs) We're up. We're back at it. So another, now now we're about to get a little controversial, right? Another, uh, form of figurative language that we're going to talk about right now is hyperbole. Hyperbole gets a little tricky, right? Because 
without being able to recognize hyperbole, I've seen a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ come to come to points of of a crisis of faith because they because of their inability to recognize hyperbole. And I'm not the one to beat around the bush, so we're going to go right at it, right? We're going to go right at it. Yahweh commanding genocide. We're going to go right at it. We're not going to hide. And I know this is a, a serious topic. This is super, super serious topic. Is that what Yahweh did in, in the Old Testament? Was he commanding genocide? So real quick, because you believe that the scriptures are the, are the inerrant word of God, does not believe, does not mean that you can't also believe that God worked with men to write the scriptures. And he used literature, he used plain literature that people understood in order to relay messages. So it can be the the inerrant word of God, that doesn't mean that literary forms take away from it being inerrant. And hyperbole is one of those forms. Hyperbole is, it's there. And this isn't something that should lead you to be a crisis of faith. With a little bit of study, with a little bit of work done, you'll be able to pick up on this. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel 15. And we're going to address one of these what some would call a problematic passage or a difficult passage. And on the surface, I can understand that. It was difficult for me, you know, when I really first started digging into the scriptures. And I'm like, wait, what is this really about? Like, what? So let's go to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to go to verse 3. This is, this is a command. This is God speaking. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Wow. Wow. Does the Bible really say, does the Bible really say stuff like that? Yeah, it does. 1 Samuel 15. Verse 3, the Amalekites are to be completely destroyed, men, women, infants, and nursing babies. That's what it says, 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. On its surface, you would say, how do you reconcile that with an all-loving God? There, you can't. There's no way. Reconciling that with an all-loving God, no. An all-loving God wouldn't command infants and nursing babies to be completely destroyed. And you know what? You're right. I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely. And as we continue to read the scripture, we're starting to pick up on things and we can understand how this has been written. Again, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. There's no contradictions. 
There's no tampering. Contextual criticism has validated that the scriptures that we hold in our hands are 98.8% accurate to the text that was discovered 1,800 years ago. So there's no difference. It hasn't been messed with. It hasn't been tampered with. We know that. We know that the scripture is exactly the way it is, exactly the way it was, and exactly the way it will be forever. It is inerrant. No contradictions in it. There are some things that may seem contradictory if you haven't opened your eyes up to literary forms, if you haven't understood how literature is used in the scripture. This is God communicating to us, so he communicates in a manner that we understand through plain language. And in that plain language, literary forms are used. Hyperbole is one of them. So remember, 1 Samuel 15.3, the Amalekites were commanded to be utterly destroyed. Men, women, children, nursing babies, infants, all of them, even their animals, kill all of them, right? That was a command. We also know that the book of 1 Samuel is written in chronological order, one event after another. So now let's go to 1 Samuel 27, verse 8. David and his men went up and raided the Gesherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Okay, wait, what? But I thought he commanded the, the Amalekites to be utterly destroyed. Men, women, children, infants, nur nursing babies back in 1 Samuel 15. Well, now we're back in, now we're up to 1 Samuel 27, and the Amalekites are still there. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Do we do this now? In, in plain language, every day right now, we do this, right? I'll give you a perfect example. As we come upon uh, the greatest time of the year, the NFL season is about to kick off, I'm sure that millions and millions of you will stand with me in this statement. There are very few things that give me as much pleasure as watching the Dallas Cowboys lose every Sunday. You better believe that that brings a big old smile on my face. And what happens when we watch the Dallas Cowboys lose on Monday when we're talking about the Dallas Cowboys getting beat up? What do we say? We use stuff like, man, we killed them boys. Them dudes got killed. They got annihilated. Them boys got slaughtered yesterday. Did they really get annihilated? Did they get slaughtered, literally? On Monday, we can go watch the Cowboys practice after they lost on Sunday. Right? So they didn't really get killed. They didn't really get annihilated. They didn't really get destroyed. Figurative language. Hyperbole. Now, I'm not blind to what the scholars say. Uh, I, I've, 
I've read all sides of the argument. I've 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 gotten into all sides of the argument. To me, when you read the Bible in plain plain English, we know that First Samuel is in chronological order. The Amalekites were told to be utterly destroyed, all of them, in chapter fifteen. They show back up in chapter twenty-seven. We know this isn't, you know, fifteen twenty generations between chapter fifteen and chapter twenty-seven. We know that, so. Clearly, that was hyperbole, but you may hear some people say that, you know, the explanation of hyperbole is is insufficient, that it, it, it reduces the effect of sin. It, it's too soft on sin. It's not helpful, right? Instead of saying that, oh, you know, there's hyperbole. There's hyperbolic language in in the Bible. We should be we should be ready to to reconcile the vile nature of the of Canaanite culture to understand that they deserve to be destroyed. I mean, after all, they sacrificed their children to Baal. So why so why is it that we have a problem with a command for them to be exterminated. You know, we're just too soft on sin. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. No, no, we're not too soft on sin. We understand what sin is. Sin is death. We get it. We understand that. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're, we're letting the scripture speak for itself. And 1 Samuel 15, the command for them to be for the Amalekites to be utterly destroyed, and then for them to show back up in, verse, in chapter 27, it shows you that hyperbolic language is used. And guess what? Hyperbolic language was just as common in the ancient Near East as it is now, particularly when the cowboys are annihilated on Sunday. Right? <laughs> So, the last literary form that we're going to speak about today is a touchy one uh, for a lot of us. Uh, I know that it's one of these things I read about on Twitter. People don't agree with it. Uh, they're upset about this, this type of literature or, or this type of, uh, of literary form in the scriptures, and they they legalistically try to impose it on other people. Uh, so we're just going to dive in. Sarcasm. So what do we hear a lot on, on social media? Oh, it's not very Christ-like to be sarcastic. Sarcasm benefits no one. All it does is it is it's, is it's a poison. And, 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 and sarcasm, and you shouldn't, sarcasm shouldn't be incorporated in your language. Sarcasm is hurtful. Sarcasm is, you know, it's not funny. It hurts people's feelings. In, in a lot of cases, I would agree, right? 
yes, you don't want to be a, a jerk to people and use sarcasm to be, you know, to be mean. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. At least I would hope nobody would disagree with that. But is there a place for sarcasm in our language, in our vernacular? You better believe there is. There's sarcasm all through the scriptures. Now, again, that doesn't justify us being mean, right? But to assert to somebody else that, that they shouldn't use sarcasm in their vernacular, like that type of legalistic, you know, nature, like, no, no. Sarcasm's in the scripture. It's used in the scripture. It's used by Yahweh. It's used by Christ. It's used by the prophets. And it's very deliberate. It's functional. It's used to prove a point. It's used to kind of put people in their place. It's used to expose someone's their haughtiness and their uh, their high horse. It's used to expose that. You know, and let's look at a couple of these things. I'm I'm not going to read the whole chapter of Job twenty third, Job thirty eight. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I invite you to read the chapter of Job thirty eight. But when you, and when you read the chapter of Job thirty eight, understand that this is right after Job has has you know he finally came to the point where he's ready. He's demanding that Yahweh, the Creator of all, he's demanding that he. He have an answer for why he's gone through these tribulations, right? He's he's demanding you need to talk to me, God. You need to tell me, God, what like what is all this about? And just the way chapter thirty eight starts, then the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind, and he said, "Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man." When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, if you have an understanding, who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This entire chapter, in fact, the next two, <laughs> the next three chapters, four chapters, is riddled with sarcasm. It was, it's intentional and it's deliberate to put Job back in his place. Job recognized that and he voluntarily sat down and shut his mouth. Chapter 38 to 41, through 41, three chapters of Yahweh, the Most High, the Creator God of all, being sarcastic. <laughs> so, yes, there's a place for sarcasm. And the ability to recognize sarcasm and when sarcasm is inserted into the scriptures. It's gonna do ju it's gonna do you well. It's gonna serve you well when you're talking about this kind of stuff 
to people whose arguments against what we believe come from internet memes. Because there's a word that we all use that very few actually understand. Context. If you understand context, and you recognize where sarcasm is within the context of a passage, then when you're hit with the internet meme crowd, you can go back to 1 Peter 3.15 and be able to give an account for the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And in verse 27, this is the infamous Elijah at Mount Carmel. Now, verse 27 starts off, according to some, very unchristlike, right? At noon, Elijah mocked them. Well, wait, well, hold on, Lathan, hold on, Lathan. Mocking people is not Christ-like. What would Jesus do? You don't mock people. That's not how you show love to your neighbor. I know. I've heard it too. Is that how you show love to your neighbor? You know, Jesus is all about love. He's all love. And you don't show love to your neighbor by mocking them and being sarcastic. You show them grace. Mm hmm As a Christian... You subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity, meaning that God is one God, three persons. Jesus was there when the Old Testament was written. In fact, I'll take it a step further. He wrote the Old Testament. Ponder on that for a while. The Hebrew word for ponder is salah. You see salah all the way through the Psalms, Salah. It means stop, think, ponder. Jesus wrote the Old Testament. So everything that's in the Old Testament that you, quote unquote, disagree with, or that's not very godly, Jesus wouldn't do that. Is that what Jesus would do? Jesus mocked the priests of Baal, of, of Baal. He mocked them. I want you to understand that. Jesus mocked them. Jesus used sarcasm as he was talking to Job. That was Jesus. So there's a place for certain things in our vernacular. We can recognize these things in our in the literature that we read, and we can use that information to help us interpret correctly. Verse 27, 
At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. So remember, this is when Elijah was having the contest with the priests of Baal, and they were going to see whose God was superior, the God of, of the Israelites or Baal. Elijah, with the utmost confidence, knowing that the God he serves is the God, is the God, the name above all names, his confidence allowed him to stand there. I'd argue he was pretty cocky about it, right? That's what it looks like to me when you read the text. Does that mean we should be cocky? No. But there should be a certain level of confidence when we're talking about the, the scriptures in the Bible. When we're addressing things in the Bible that are you know, brought to us from, from those who are Seeking answers, ridiculing, or just trying to reconcile things. There should be a level of confidence in your voice, just like Elijah has right here. You should stand firm on your convictions that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And you can read it literally. Understanding that literal interpretation recognizes different literary forms, figures of speech, and understands that there's a place for it all. But again, I'll play devil's advocate. Well, well, Jesus wouldn't do, you know, that was Elijah. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't be sarcastic. Jesus is about love and grace. Okay. So whenever Jesus in the book of Matthew was talking to the Pharisees, let's go to chapter 12 in the book of Matthew. We're going to start at verse 1. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain field on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? He said to them, Jesus said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? I'm going to give you a clue. Every time in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking and you see the phrase, Haven't you read? Haven't you heard? That's sarcasm. Why? How do we know this? Because he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. Of course they've read it. They know the scriptures back and forth. Yeah, they've read it. Right? They've read it. So if Jesus is asking them, well, haven't you read? That's sarcasm. And it exists in the scripture. It exists with Jesus. But what is the point of all this? Am I telling you that it's 
Christ like to walk around and be sarcastic with everybody? No. What do we do here of things eternal? This is biblical literacy. This is being able to understand how the scripture was written so that we can be edified and that we can be empowered to discern between truth and lie, doctrine from deception. So take that, think about it, meditate on it, and understand that yes, Jesus was sarcastic too. There was a time and a place for it, but we can see it and we can recognize it based on the literary forms that we can spot in the scriptures, figurative language. So as we go through this journey to become more equipped intellectually as we prepare to give a defense for the hope that is within us, we can now read the scripture in a new light, understanding literary forms, figures of speech, so we can be empowered. Thank you so much for stopping by with me. Have a blessed one. Mm-hmm.